Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Released in 2009, directed by David Yates, written by Steve Cloves, based on the novel by J.K. Rowling. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James, and we're on year six, the Half-Blood we're Prince done. of Harry Potter and our saga. I'm kind of sad that it's almost coming to an end now. I know. I actually just started reading Half-Blood Prince again just for fun. Just for fun. It's it's such a good... It might be my favorite book, and I'm pretty It's my favorite movie. I think Azkaban might be a better movie, maybe, but I think Half-Blood, for me, it's just my favorite. Uh, we we just watched Half Blood to prepare for this, and I had already seen it a bunch of times. But I, upon watching it again, I and we just watched Azkaban two weeks ago, and I gotta say, I think Half Blood Prince is a better movie. I think it it's probably the masterpiece in the franchise in this movie. Of filmmaking, it gets a lot of hate. I don't understand why. It's I think the it's second least, ra- second lowest rated by fans. By fan on yeah. IMDb. Yeah. On, so, on Rotten so Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes it's eighty four percent critic score, seventy eight percent. Audience score, IMDb at 7.6, and Metacritic at 78%. And I think it's because the tone, it's really dark. And cinematography is astounding, but I think a lot of people, when they watch it, they don't understand what they were trying to do with it, and they look at it, and it might seem bleak, and might seem a little depressing. It's so desaturated, and also, like, it's completely blue. And there are so many people, like, on YouTube who've, like, color-corrected their own version of the Half-Blood Prince because they, they think it looks bad. It's like you literally made it look like the Sorcerer's Stone. The whole point of it is this dark tone. Yeah, and if you look the opening logo for Warner Brothers, it gets more and more rusty every time the, each movie opens and it, it eventually fades into like a totally withered symbol by Deathly Hallows Part 2. So that's the whole, the trajectory of the themes of the movies and the cinematography for this film obviously is the biggest takeaway when you watch it because it really is astounding. It's the most beautiful film of the entire franchise and um, David Yates hired a French cinematographer. Uh, his what's hold on, Bruno Delbano. Delbano and he's actually probably France's best cinematographer. He, he's famous mostly for his film Amelie. Uh, which is you can see is one of the most visually striking films this century for sure. But he so, also does the Coen Brothers movies like yeah. Lewin Davis. Yeah, the last few Coen Brothers, they because he's obviously one of the best working, so they keep going with him. And he brought so much richness and texture and a new uh, style to the films because of essentially what I read, they were inspired by Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter. It's your pa- your favorite painter. My favorite painter. Yeah, it's personal. Be- yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> he painted his portraits and and paintings with a. Uh, using what a naturally occurring light in that environment would look like. He was like the first painter to make his portraits look cinematic. Exactly, very much so. And so they used him as inspiration for the lighting in this movie, and that's why it looks the way it is, and I think it's really incredible. Yeah, and so the style of Rembrandt in the film is a lot of contrast, a lot of dark lighting, just like you said, like natural lighting or or low ambient lighting. And it's more the light's coming from one direction, like mm-hmm. just one window and that's the only light in the entire image. As well as deep sharp deep shadows and like very dark blacks, which is very uncommon for a large franchise film to do. But it, it seems normal for a movie where there's no electricity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the cinematography, it's a beautiful metaphor for the darkness just rising outside the castle in the world because this movie is like the calm before the storm of the war that's about to happen. Yeah, the ironic thing about this movie being so great is that Voldemort's not even in it. And There's it, just that one shot of him. Yeah, it's a little quick thing. Yeah. And 
you you always there's always this thing about writing your your movies you're only as good as your villain and or your antagonist antagonist and so your antagonist makes your movie better whereas the antagonist of the franchise isn't even in this film which is ironic he yeah. is Tom Riddle is in the movies but he is not the fully formed Tom Riddle, Voldemort that we know we see the very young Tom Riddle and then the teenage Tom Riddle and otherwise the main villain of the main antagonist of this movie is basically Malfoy. Well, I wouldn't even say it's Malfoy because he's not like going against Harry. They only have they have the interaction well, yeah, yeah. with the Sectum Sempra. So I would say there if, isn't really a strictly an antagonist. I would say if there is an antagonist, it would be it has to be Snape. No, 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 because Snape isn't stopping, isn't impeding Harry. Harry yeah, kills Dumbledore. He's not impeding Harry's progress of, of the plot. So what? The counter of Harry's plot, since Harry's the protagonist, the antagonist would probably be Slughorn's memory. And what he's trying to achieve for the memory. Yeah. So okay, obtain. Okay. So that's actually a good point because Harry's goal and Dumbledore's goal, when we we learn in this movie, is to find the real memory of Slughorns. And yeah. Slughorn is the antagonizing force that is preventing him from achieving his goal. I wouldn't even know. Actually, let me reiterate even more. It's not Slughorn's memory. It's Slughorn's guilt. Yeah. That's the antagonist of the movie because Slughorn's guilt is what's kept him from giving up that memory to anyone, especially to Dumbledore up until the point where Harry gets it. And what I think is so cool about this movie and this book is that even up to this point, this late in the stage, Dumbledore still doesn't know exactly how Voldemort has survived and he's still figuring it out. Although, yes, he's managed to destroy the ring, the Peveril ring, and um, Harry destroyed the, di the diary. And Voldemort knows there was something to those, but he doesn't quite know exactly. It's the Gaunt ring. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah um, the Gaunt family ring. He doesn't, sorry, uh, he doesn't understand what the magical power Voldemort has been using to preserve his life force. And so it's surprising because Dumbledore seems to be all-knowing, but even he has been eluded by the Dark Lord to this point. Yeah, so that's the whole objective of the movie. Again, there's really no villain. It's trying to obtain that memory. And what I think is so great about this movie, and it's a, it's a shame the Harry Potter films are so well crafted, um, and I think it's the reason for its lack of any kind of consideration from the Academy is because of how mag monumentally successful they were. But movies like this, movies like Azkaban, and you can even say um, Deathly Hallows Part 1 has really gorgeous filmmaking. Well, this did get nominated for an Oscar yeah. for Best Cinematography. But, I, but I'm talking production design, yeah, everything costuming. About it. Like, Every, this everything. is a movie that could warrant at least like eight nominations. Not in terms of the acting, but in terms of the production. And it only gets one. And it's a shame because movies like this are so incredible and got no recognition at all. My guess would be because like the Lord of the Rings franchise for three of those years like was nominated for everything and took so, so many awards. So maybe the Academy was like, we can't keep doing this with these large franchises. Not that every Harry Potter movie deserves all the accolades that the Lord of the Rings trilogy got. But, but like Half-Blood Prince and Azkaban, they deserve to be nominated for Best Picture and a ton of awards. I would say that the Academy voters at this time, they're they were mostly older. Um, and it could be that they weren't very welcoming of a uh, a movie with teens in it, and then b maybe they weren't so in love with the idea of magic and wizards in well, terms I mean, of great in, ter in terms of contra is like a Gandalf's a wizard. Yeah, I know. But and talking talking about juxtaposing it in a movie that they would nominate for Best Picture. I, I think mean, it could be something about the content. I think it's. I saying. think it's a little bit of all of that. Yeah. Maybe I think you're onto something with the teen stuff, but I think also they were overwhelmed with the Lord of the Rings stuff. Maybe they wanted like more dramatic films to only yeah. be nominated for awards. Yeah. But uh, if anything other than cinematography, this should have gotten nominated for adapted screenplay because Cloves did such a fantastic job. 
because this book is so dense and there it's this is a book where every friggin page matters like yeah there's so much dense important information in, in this book and yet he managed to condense it into a two and a half hour movie which is incredibly hard so he should have gotten recognized and but what i really love about the writing of this is because it, we're at this stage in, in harry potter where uh it's super dramatic the stakes are high important things are being discovered and harry and dumbledore are doing very important things voldemort and, and malfoy and snape are doing important things and yet the filmmakers and writers understood that part of the charm and part of the reason why Harry Potter is successful is because of the characters, especially the characters we love, like all the kids, like the teachers. And so there's still so much with like the teen romance and going, like, still going through puberty, adolescence. And this is a, a, a surprising amount of humor in this movie. It can be laugh out loud funny at times. And I think that them not straying, them being able to like, we need to add all this teen romance, all the teen angst into this movie and not stray away from that is a strength to the film. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends and to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules, top tier patrons get Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. And the best perk of all is every patron has access to weekly bonus episodes of the show that you can only see every Tuesday. We post patron episodes just for the patrons. It's awesome. Head on over to our new website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, notification bell, leave some comments, give us those likes. Five-star reviews are also super helpful. Now let's get back into the Half-Blood Prince, and I, I want to stay on the writing part. So yes, this book is huge. It's very important and they left a lot of stuff out which i think a lot of people are upset about but at the same time i don't think it really took away from the story so some things that are that really big things that people are upset that are left out are more of Fenrir grayback the half werewolf or the werewolf who has the taste for blood yeah we, we see a couple shots of him in the movie that's yeah it. so even in his non-werewolf form yeah. he has this taste for blood and he's a terrifying character he's been in the books a lot the huge battle at the end, obviously, on the Astronomy Tower, where the Order of the Phoenix plus a lot of Harry and his friends are battling the Death Eaters. And they take the Felix Felicis. Yeah. yeah. Um, more of Tonks. Like, for example, she's the one who rescues Harry on the train after Malfoy puts the invisibility cloak on him and brings him to Hogwarts. And she's also guarding Hogwarts as one of the Aurors. And she's at Hogsmeade. Yeah. But she does have that scene at Christmas. Dumbledore's funeral at the end of the film, which is not in the movie at all. And then also Voldemort returning to Hogwarts looking for the job is an awesome scene. It's one of the memories that Dumb I mean, Dumbledore shows Harry. I believe there are three memories from of Tom Riddle's life that we don't see. We, we don't see the, the Gaunt house. Mm -hmm. We don't see Tom Riddle trying to get the job at, as a defense against the dark arts. And then there's another there's another memory. Well, we, we don't, don't see, see any of the stuff with Tom when he's working at Borgen and Burke. And he's yeah. trying to find the artifacts. And, for example, when he gets the, the cup from Helga Hufflepuff from that... Uh, a very wealthy woman, mm -hmm. so we don't see his interactions with her. But I think I think the most important thing we don't see is the Gaunt house because yeah. we in in that scene in the book we learn who his parents were and his 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 father was just a very handsome Muggle uh, and then his mother was uh, a descendant of Salazar, so they're in part of the the Gaunt household family and um, through inbreeding and their pure blood ways they had become uh, a very mentally unstable family um, and basically ran out of money and they're living in poverty and they're all a little nuts they're all a little kooky at this point and um her mother after luckily being um her her brother and her abusive father being taken to azkaban um she was able to finally be on her own and she concocted a love potion 
um, to uh, the Tom Riddle Sr., gave it to him, and being under the guise of this potion, he married her thinking that he was in love with her. Yeah, so that's something that there's so much there that yeah. like you can't really add it to the, to the movie because, it, again, you have a runtime, and there's only so much you can show, and that adds so much more that you have to keep explaining throughout the next two films, three films. But I wish somehow they could have done it in the sense that love potions are such a main major theme in this film and we have all the romance and you know this is a big transition film where the characters are going from a childhood to adulthood this is where harry potter becomes an adult yeah. all his friends become adults this is the transition film they're dating or order of the yeah. phoenix is kind of there but this is the movie where they become adults they basically become of age and in in the memories of voldemort and tom riddle and in the gaunts we learn that tom riddle's mother took that love potion like you said to basically trick Tom Riddle into marrying her and they run off and they have this child. And it's it's such a fascinating concept because it ties with Voldemort's inability to understand love because he was created and conceived out of a love potion which was devoid of real love. So maybe that's why as a person, as a wizard, he can never understand love. He doesn't want love and he despises love. It's it's That's the number one reason. And then you can say the second reason is because he grew up without parents raised in that orphanage because when Tom Riddle Sr., um, what happened was um, Merope, uh, Tom Riddle's mother, Merope, she decided, I'm not going to give him the potion anymore. Maybe he'll love me because I'm pregnant and we're married. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah, and then when Tom Riddle Sr. Um, was free of the love, po love potion, he, he left her and abandoned her. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply and didn't care what happened to the son. And then she died in childbirth in the orphanage, and so Tom Riddle, that's why he grew up an orphan. And also, something else that they don't have in the movie at all, which I wish they did, was no Snape Defense Against the Dark Arts classes. Oh, yeah. So ironically, this movie, you could argue, has the most uh, classroom scenes, for sure, minutes-wise, absolutely. Like, they spend a ton of time in the potions class, but I, that's pretty much the only class they're ever in. Although, I think there's, like, five scenes in the potions class, which is really great to see. But none with Snape at the Defense Against the Dark Arts, with, which there are plenty of scenes of that in the book, which I wish they could have done because people who haven't read the book, you've always known that Snape has wanted the Defense Against the Dark Arts job, and, oh, he's finally got it, but we don't get to see it. And this, the job was always jinxed because of Tom Riddle not being allowed to get the job because Dumbledore wouldn't hire him for it. Yeah, so exactly. from that moment on, the that's why the job was cursed. And I think it was since 1956, no one has been able to last more than a year as a d Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in Hogwarts. Which is wild. So it's a long time. But that's why it's so hard for anyone. That's why he hires Gilderoy Lockhart. Yeah. That's why he gets Lupin. It's like the last resort. We have to get someone into we this We have to position. get a werewolf to yeah. do it. Someone else will do it. We have it. to get this guy who literally doesn't know how to do magic besides <laughs> Obliviate. <laughs> but um, what I also love about this film is in addition to all the classes and all the time we spend in the classrooms, 
it also feels the most like at Hogwarts, I think, after watching this instead of Chamber of Secrets, which I said a few weeks ago. I think this one feels the most like you're at Hogwarts because there's so much time with the kids in, like, the dormitories and in, in the room houses, the Gryffindor common room and on and on Quidditch field and in, in the in the the Great Hall. We're just so much—in the hallways, we're all mm-hmm. over the place, all over Hogwarts. Yeah, they did a great job with changing the geographies. I think at this point in the, the production of the entire franchise, they had built so many sets— for the different films, like, oh, for this film, we got to build these sets, and the next film, we got to build these sets, and the next film, we got to build these sets. And they never threw any sets away, and they often reused sets for different sets. Like, like Slughorn's office was the trophy room in a different in a different uh, um, movie. And so I think at this point, they, built, they had built so many sets, they were able to use more environments because... You know, they, they they had a luxury, a, a plethora of things to do. Yeah, in addition to building sets for that, they were also designing and building the Wizarding World theme parks. So they used a lot of the designs that they were planning for that and made duplicates, basically. So, like, the three, brooms, the three broomsticks in the movie is an exact replica of the three broomsticks when you go to Harry Potter Wizarding World. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, they had all these designs, and, and mm. Diagon Alley and, and everything like that was already established, but, like, Wizard Weezes, that building, too, is, like, another great new set. And J.K. has to approve all the sets, apparently. I'm sure she, she does. Has, she has, like, final say on what they look like. she got a ton of control, yeah. which, which is very she actually, smart. She owns the rights to Harry Potter. Yeah. She she owns it. Like, they have to... Add, she has to give permission for them to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's not that Warner Brothers bought the rights. They're basically keeping it on hold in... For as long as they can, yeah, to be able to use it, and also I love Nicholas Hooper's score in this film. Like we talked about, Order of the Phoenix, how you're not a huge fan of that. It's much better in this one, but this one I think is incredible because Hooper really brought like Hedwig's theme back, and especially I, if you notice in the beginning of the film, the the opening credits when you talked about earlier of the Warner Brothers logo and everything, and you can hear um, what the, Hooper and Yates just set the film up in a very melancholy and sad tone because we don't get to mourn with Harry Potter over the death of Sirius and the PTSD he's going to be experiencing from the Ministry of Magic. So they open it up really cleverly with the events immediately after the Ministry of Magic when all the reporters show up and they're getting uh, paparazzi photos of Harry as he's being led away by, by Dumbledore. But also when you listen to the music... Hedwig's theme is there, but it's very subtle, and it's kind of being engulfed by these like ominous, melancholy, minor violin tones. And the choir, yeah, and and so that takes over the Hedwig's theme, and, and then eventually like the Death Eater sounds kind of take over. Yeah, he did a much better job with this film. And the thing with Sirius is in the book, Harry's grief is much more prominent. We we see it in the movie, but it's it's agonizing him all day, every day, and he's reminded of Sirius often, especially whenever he sees Tonks, because Tonks was Sirius's cousin, and she she actually feels guilty for his death, thinking that it was her fault as well. Well, they think that that's why she's very in the book. She's very yeah. melancholy and sad. They think it's because of Sirius, but it's obvious, but it's because of Remus. Yeah, because Remus doesn't want to be with her, mm. which we eventually learn. But yeah, we won't get too much in the book, guys, because this is such a good movie. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's but I think I think for as dark as the movie is, it has a lot of levity. It's very very funny at times. Oh, it's hysterical. Like, laugh out loud funny. Slughorn, uh Jim Broadbent did a fantastic job as as uh, Slughorn. Uh, and also like like Lavender Brown and Ron is hysterical and just all the like it's I love the the romance and then cuz when you're when you're that age and you have crushes on people like you don't tell them. 
we're at this point you're at that point in your life where you're like you're terrified of like revealing to your crush that you like them and you just like don't know how to act or behave and so people often keep it to themselves and that has bad repercussions sometimes for example with this with ron dating lavender brown because hermione and ron are never open about their feelings for each other yeah and also i think ron he he doesn't want to tell Hermione how he feels because a he's a boy and a teenager and terrified of his real feelings and will never admit it for a long time, which we can all relate to <laughs> if you're a guy. But um, also I think he also feels some jealousy and envy for about Crumb and she, I think he's still upset about that. Well, I think Ron feels jealousy about a lot of things and he I think that he feels that he's unnoticed in a lot of ways. Which is why when Lavender Brown gives him attention, he goes to her because it's those things you just mentioned. And on top of that, not getting in the slug club, uh, being yeah. basically ignored by Slughorn. He can't even remember his name. And also Harry being the chosen one. It's not like Goblet where Ron is angry and furious at Harry. But he, he does feel like he's n unnoticed by everyone else. And ha everyone's got their eyes on Harry in this one. He's just Harry's best friend. He's yeah, in his shadows. Exactly. And then... Not to it, mention he's in his brother's shadows too. Yeah, All exactly. of his brothers. Exactly. So I think that Ron has always struggled with this identity crisis of people not recognizing him. And so I think that... Especially Hermione because she's not being totally honest. Although she gives hints. Um, like when she orders ginger beer. Butterbeer. Butterbeer. <laughs> she's... <laughs> She's being pretty obvious. Like, like if, what, what if, if, we if she not... looked over and saw us snugging? Yeah, exactly. So she's she's putting signals out there, but they're not. Did you hear what he, she said about us, me and her snugging? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that he doesn't understand that Hermione uh, desires him, and that's why when Lavender Brown comes knocking, like he's right for it. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And we also have a relationship that we finally get to see being budding between Harry and Dumbledore, and this goes way more in-depth in the I books. I going to say Harry and Ginny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's later on. But um, Harry and Dumbledore, you know, we always talk about how Dumbledore, people say like, oh, if you name Harry's father figures, Dumbledore's top of the list. But really, up until this point of the franchise, he doesn't really know much about Dumbledore. They haven't had a ton of interactions. They've never spoken outside of school. Well, they have. Oh, well, uh, yeah, outside of Hogwarts yeah, itself. Outside, yeah. So in this book, it's really great to see early on Dumbledore come and, and grab Harry from the train station, even though Harry was about to risk it all to hang out with that girl from the diner. She was very fit. She was very proper fit. Proper fit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off at 11. <laughs> so that, but then we see him and Dumbledore interacting and like going on these missions, and they're starting to form this relationship because Dumbledore, in Order of the Phoenix, was keeping his distance from Harry because he thought it was what was going to protect him the most and also protect basically the the rebellion against Dumble against Voldemort because he felt that if Voldemort didn't think that he and Harry were close, he'd be less likely to go inside Harry's mind and try to possess him. And it's this movie which is what makes the impact of his death so bad because like you said he's always been there but he they haven't had a real relationship yet and Dumbledore has always cared for him and always protected him and always watched him and from always afar. watched him but there was always a distance but in this movie like you said they spent so much time together and it's a highlight of the film for sure the more Dumbledore the better I think and then Michael Gammon really came into his own in this film yeah I, I agree. think with the character I think he, imb he imbued the character with a lot more kindness a lot more gentleness and like that that reserved nature that soft spoken Dumbledore that are uh, is familiar in the books. Yeah. Um a little less vibrant in terms of his energy, which I think is more accurate to Dumbledore. Especially with Dumbledore at this point in his life and what's been going on that we don't know about yet in terms of his black and dead in hand. So we first see Dumbledore and mentioned and Harry looks at it, he's like, Oh, the tale is even more fantastical or whatever he says. 
and we eventually learn. I'm sure you all have seen Deathly Hollows. You all know we eventually learned that Dumbledore tried to destroy the Gaunt Ring. Well, he did destroy the Gaunt Ring, but it cost him this horrible counter curse onto his hand, which is was eventually we learned in Deathly Hollows is starting to spread through his entire body and was gonna kill him in six months. Yeah, he there's no way to fix the curse at all. So at this yeah. point, Har Dumbledore has six months, probably less if he if he dies during it. If they go out on missions and stuff, he has six months to prepare Harry. For this mission, this impossible task of finding Horcruxes and destroying them, even though Harry's not even 17 yet in this film, he's, he's 16 years old, he's underprepared, but he has to. He's, he's forcing Harry Potter into maturity in this movie, into adulthood, and he's like, even with the task of ob obtaining the memory from Slughorn, he says that line, you have to, you have to do this or else we're, we're blind, we're yeah. going into the dark blind. So he's forcing Harry to grow up. Yeah. Not in a bat in a mean way, but like it's like a a mother bird pushing its baby bird out, out of a nest. Like you gotta fly, kid. Let's go. Yeah, you, you gotta be the Dark Lord, bro. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm dying, man. <laughs> fucking dying. I'm fucking dying. <laughs> <laughs> I really love how they opened the film in the train station, because it was it's a modern uh, architecture, a modern environment to the Muggle world, which we're familiar with because we're all Muggles. I mean, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And I think a lot of fans are actually upset about it because it's not in the book. But um, I think it's nice to see him, Harry, and Dumb like seeing J Dumbledore juxtaposed in a subway station, in the rail station, was it's such a fun sight to see. It's so cool. Yeah, I have no. Pro I like it more than the opening of the books. And he's staring at like the 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 uh, what do you call it? Perfume ad the on, on the billboard. Yeah, the magic yeah. perfume. Yeah. yeah. Divine I, magic. I, I love it. And, yeah. then, and then also- like, We don't need to see the Dudleys. And yeah, the we don't need I mean. it. Yeah. Every, every movie, we don't have to see it. Yeah. And also, this this movie also has one of the best scenes of the franchise, I think, and that's um, the Unbreakable Vow scene when Snape makes the Unbreakable Vow with Narcissa to aid Malfoy in his mission and to also carry out the deed if Malfoy is unable to. And it's such an incredible scene, beautiful cinematography. This is like They do that shot- in the in the neighborhood, and every house looks the same because it's this giant neighborhood of identical houses, and and Narcissa and, Be and Bellatrix are moving through that neighborhood, and we see Snape. And at this point in the movie, this is when you watch this movie for the first time or you read the book for the first time. This is a shocker, and this is surprising because this shows us that Snape seems to be on the Dark Lord's side. It kind of confirms that for yeah. people who are still confused about him, exactly because Wormtail's there uh, aiding Snape, and then. Snape also knows uh, the Dark Lord's mission that he is in, in um, tasked for Draco, and that's surprising to Bellatrix, who thinks that she knows the Dark Lord better than anyone, and yet Snape, who we have all thought has been a, a crusader of good, although an ambiguous one, but he really is in the Dark Lord's pocket, so we think. Yeah, that's a great point, because Order of the Phoenix, we find out he's in the Order of the Phoenix, so, alright, he must be Dumbledore's guy, and you know, everyone trusts Dumbledore and his judgment, which Lupin says at Christmas to Harry, it's, it comes down to whether you trust Vol Dumbledore's judgment, and he trusts Snape. And so we watch the scene of him agreeing to life or death help Draco in this mission, and, and for... Anyone who, didn't, who doesn't know the, what happens next, it's like he's a villain. Yeah, he's 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 gonna kill somebody. He's, he's he's working against Dumbledore. This confirms it. Yeah, a fantastic scene, and Alan Rickman I think steals the show in this movie. In this scene in particular, when you watch it after you know everything yeah. about Deathly Hallows, when you watch Alan Rickman as Snape in this scene, there's so much behind his eyes and the expressions that he's giving because in his mind he's like, I'm gonna die at some point soon. 
I was hoping to live longer, but I'm, I'm going to die. And if Draco Fs up, I die. And if I have to, at some point, I'm going to have to kill Albus. And Albus knows he wants me to. Yeah, Albus, my my new greatest friend and, like, father figure to him as well. Snape and Dumbledore have become extremely close over the last 12 years. It's incredible acting. Yeah. You, you guys, check it out. Like, watch this movie and just watch that scene and just, just uh, watch Snape's face. I will. Uh, I will. <laughs> Cut. That's actually a pretty good impression. Thanks. But I, the opening of this film, it's so dark and powerful, and they Yates does a great job setting it up in terms of the darkness of the world. So Diagon Alley is basically deserted besides Wizard Wheezes, and we see the scene where the Death Eaters kidnap Ollivander, and if you notice, they're carrying a bunch of wands as well. And, and so basically, there are a lot of people going missing, and although everyone, yes, now the Ministry of Magic... Uh, is not trying to hide the fact that Voldemort's back. They're not trying to come against Harry. Harry is now believed to be the chosen one, and, and people think that he's going to be the one that defeats Voldemort. It's like 2020, the world, in this in this one. You you compare it. Like, every time there's a movie that's dark, oh, it's like 2020 and COVID. <laughs> hey, it seems they have a lot in common. There's no giant villain coming to kill everybody. That's true. That's true. Unless you count COVID as the COVID's villain. Lord Voldemort. Yeah. Voldemort's probably pretty bad. So I know we're not talking about the book too much, but there's just one scene in the book that I really... It's one of my favorites in the whole series. Tell us about it. And it's the scene between the two prime ministers. Oh, yeah. It opens the book, and it's an amazing scene where Cornelius Fudge visits the newly elected prime minister of Britain, who has no idea that they're are wizards and this happens every time a new prime minister is elected the prime the minister of magic it, at the time in in the wizarding world visits that that uh, prime minister through the flu network through their fireplace and it's a really fantastic scene it's super funny but also makes total sense that the leaders of the ministry are keeping informed the leaders of the muggle world that there are wizards don't worry, we got it under control, but we're here, just so you know, FYI. Yeah, and also the portrait in the Minister of Magic, in, or I mean the Prime Minister's office, is a, a wizard portrait, and sometimes it moves, and like yeah. he's always like, what is that? Did yeah. I see something move in yeah. the portrait? He, he always announces, like, the, the the Minister of Magic would like to speak to you. It's <laughs> a great scene. Obviously, they couldn't put it in, but I loved it. All right. And I think one of the most important relationships in this film is, you, you could say it's not really much of a relationship, actually. It's Harry and Draco, and they kind of have this back and forth, which is... They're both tasked with these difficult missions. You know, Harry has to try to obtain this memory from Slughorn, who's very hesitant to get it, give it to him because he's trying to protect himself. But also Draco, we don't know fully what his mission is until the very end of the film on the on the astronomy tower. We think that he's just been tasked with creating the portal the and and fixing and mending the vanishing cabinet in the room for requirements so that the Death Eaters to co can come. But it's not until that very last scene, right before Dumbledore is killed by Snape, that we learn that Draco was tasked with killing Dumbledore. And if he doesn't kill Dumbledore, Voldemort's going to kill him. And so this film is full of, of us slowly building sympathy for this character, Draco, who we've always despised year after year after year. And Tom Felton really gives a great performance in this movie. Draco is a tragic character, I think, and he always was a bully because his father was a bully. Just the way that Lucius spoke to Draco uh, in the moments you saw them together was just very, very bullying. And so that's why Draco himself was so cruel to other kids. But ultimately, deep down, Draco is uh, an innocent kid, and he doesn't have the, the evil and the darkness within that his family name, you would think, would imbue upon him. And so he thinks that he's ready for this, and he thinks it's his moment of glory, and he thinks that he could be 
probably uh, the opposite of Harry Potter, be the hero of the dark the dark side in this story. But ultimately, he doesn't have it in him to be a, a killer. Yeah, and he's very similar to Harry in Order of the Phoenix, where in Order of the Phoenix, Harry had never felt more alone in his, in his entire life. And in this film, clearly Draco feels more alone than he has in his entire life. He, he avoids hanging out with his friends. He's constantly trying to figure out these schemes to try to kill Dumbledore, but as Dumbledore tells him at the end, he can't help but feel that his heart was not in either one of them. Yeah, because both of the attempts, they don't they didn't really seem well planned or well intentioned. Yeah. Like, yeah, this could kill someone, but is it really gonna get to Dumbledore? Yeah, if I yeah. give this curse to Katie Bell, I mean this curse necklace to Katie Bell in the three broomsticks while she's imperious, how is she going to all the way bring it up to Dumbledore without touching it or someone else seeing it and touching it? And then yeah. the slughorns the, slughorns the meat that he get that Slughorn was yeah. intending to give Dumbledore is a gift and poisoning that what are the chances that someone like slughorn who loves delicious and, and expensive things wouldn't just drink it himself which he does exactly or tries to yeah so draco is dealing with this uh, this impossible task of 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 being a killer yes he mends the vanishing cabinet successfully but you can tell he doesn't want to do that either and throughout the film like this when it when it doesn't work and the bird's dead when it comes back and you just hear him weeping yeah so he, there's multiple times where he's kind of crying to himself and you're you're so you feel so bad for him at this point because yes he's still a despicable person and yes you know he breaks Harry Potter's nose for no reason and puts the visibility cloak on him and tries to send him back to London but you still feel sympathy for him because as Dumbledore explains to him at the end of the film, he hasn't made all the rotten choices yet that Tom Riddle did. And he's most importantly not a killer. And if Dumbledore can do anything, it's to try to save Draco's life from being a killer. And I think that Draco, because when Snape tries to get him to help him, he's like, Draco, let me aid you. Let me help you. It'll be easier. Draco refuses saying it's his glory. It's his moment. The Dark Lord chose him. No one else. Now, on but, the, then but then he breaks down. Yeah. But on the surface, it looks like he's being very stubborn and he wants the glory for himself. But ultimately, I think that I think that Draco is heavily driven by his family name, very much driven by his father. His father's in ruins. His family has been totally torn apart in the press. And they are Lucius no, is an Azkaban. Yeah, Lucius is an Azkaban. And so I think that he's trying to salvage his family with this task the Dark Lord has appointed him. So I think that on the surface, it looks like he wants eternal glory, but on the on the deeper level, he's trying to save his entire family. But yeah, for sure. But I think it's mostly him not wanting to be killed by Voldemort as well. That too, yeah. That's kind of main motivation yeah. for me, I think. But also, you know... No, why he doesn't want help is oh, what I'm saying. okay, gotcha. That's why I established it with that scene with Snape and Draco. Why, you want to fight? Yeah, jeez. Well, anyway, <laughs> you said the spell wrong. It's going to rebound. Oh, man. Well, anyways, now that Harry and his friends are moving on into adulthood, <laughs> it's time that they head on over to manscaped.com and get the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at Checo for 20% off and free shipping worldwide. This brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor, which I'm told is very fast. It has a wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing, fellas. You gotta get on Manscaped. And everyone listening, if you don't know what to get your man for a birthday gift, Christmas, like I love you gift, or, or just a, a hint gift, go, go to Manscaped, use our coupon code. This is stuff that they would actually use. I recommend getting your hands on the Performance Package 4.0, which is just a bundle of their products. Like they, they, It comes with briefs, cologne, deodorizers, and the Lawnmower 4.0, as well as the Weed Whacker. Um, Two million men worldwide are using Manscaped products with our exclusive offer, Raiders of the Lost, at checkout from manscaped.com. You get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Wide, 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 wide. 
<laughs> a good one, right? I like that that Hogwarts setup. Very funny. Uh, yeah, I, I custom make the the ad reads now. You put a lot of work in. I can tell. It's a couple minutes. Yeah, yeah. it's not. Yeah, two whole minutes. Wow. And see you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, where were we with Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince? With Draco. With Draco. I but I want to get to um, one of my favorite parts of the film, and that's going to be Felix Felicis. Mm-hmm. And this is a potion that Harry won in the first potions class with Slughorn thanks to the book that he found. And there's that really hilarious scene where Ron and Harry, they don't have any books because they didn't expect that they could, they could take potions because they got exceeds expectations rather than outstanding, which means that they, Snape wouldn't have accepted them as a newt student. But since Slughorn accepts exceeds expectations, now they can take potions. And so they now they got to get books. So they're taking the secondhand books in the school and there's two in the shelf and there's one good one and one crappy looking one. And they both like fight for it. <laughs> so funny. Great little bit of comedy. But Harry's obviously has the writings of the Half-Blood Prince inside, which includes spells and change directions in order in order to properly make the potions at their best possible quality, which helps him make liquid death and, and allows him to win the Felix Felicis. Yeah, so I guess you could say all the other Harry Potter films are surrounded by a great mystery and we have the mystery kind of of Harry. The history's in the name. The mystery yeah. of obtaining the the memory from Slughorn, of course, but I think the mystery of the Half-Blood Prince is one of the most fascinating parts of the entire film. Like, who is the Half-Blood Prince who wrote all these incredible instructions that has her- turned Harry from exceeds expectations to better than Hermione at potions? The and, best and, uh, Slughorn's ever taught. The borderline genius who Slughorn <laughs> thinks, and, and only the second person to produce a perfect batch of liquid death. And I love... And also... Because Harry has had an experience with a book that didn't belong to him with writing in it, everyone is very uncertain about it. But Especially Harry, Ginny. In the book, yeah. Ginny. Yeah, because, because Ginny obviously was so devastatingly affected by Tom Riddle's diary. and so. But they pass it off as like, it seems like it's innocent. It seems like it's just like you know a student who was very good at potions. But ultimately, we learn that it's actually very dangerous, especially the spell Sectumsempra, which he uses on Malfoy. And I don't know what exactly it does. It seems to cause gashes to form it's like across sword the body. swipes yeah, across your body like these gashes all over him because sectum sempra in latin means um cut and always but what's really cool about the book is obviously these are spells that we learned snape was the half-blood prince that snape created and no one else knows them and that's why at the end he says you dare use my own spells against me so you dare use my, my own spells yeah. against me potter exactly so but what's really cool is that reveals actually a lot of information about the wizarding world that they don't really touch on and the thing is there's no colleges there's no universities you finish your uh, like at hogwarts or one of the other schools around the world and then you choose your career and then wizards generally teach themselves more magic you instruct yourself you you research if you have the desire or the motivation to you have to make yourself a better wizard on your own depending on whatever field you're you're in or whatever interests you have and so wizards often teach themselves spells and new theories and some wizards are so brilliant that they're able to not it's not so much i think creating spells but discovering what can be a spell experimenting yeah experimenting. like luna's mother died from experimenting exactly so there are wizards that experiment to find new types of magic and so snape obviously is one of those wizards where he wasn't just interested in 
learning magic, he was in, interested in creating magic. So I think that Snape obviously is an extremely brilliant wizard. Yeah, and we also learn of Tom Riddle and his experimenting with magic, dark magic specifically, because when we eventually find out the memory, we learn that he was interested in horcruxes, and, and he's trying to understand what they are from Slughorn, and Slughorn explains that a, slug, a horcrux is an artifact that one a wizard hides part of their soul into. And then Tom goes even further where, yes, horcruxes had been done before, but to use seven, the most magical number in the world, to make seven horcruxes is beyond experimenting. That is just unfathomable, which which is why Dumbledore is floored when they learn about it. So that's a great another great example of experimenting. And he was only 16 at the time. That's... And if you notice the shots when he's 16, he has the ring on his finger. Yeah. So this is, he has the gaunt like ring. stroking it. He had been to the gaunt house and he had murdered people at this age. Yeah, and he had all, he also uh, murdered the student um, from the chamber sequence. Mm. And so he's committed murder twice at this point, probably. So he's already started to split his soul. Yeah, exactly. That's Which is so disturbing because he's the same age as Harry and the others at this point in their lives in Hogwarts. So mm -hmm. that's what's so incredible about Tom Riddle's history. And I, my favorite parts of the movie are the memories. So there's that memory with Slughorn, which at first was uh, tampered with by Slughorn so that no one could learn the truth of the information he revealed to, Dum to Voldemort because what he told Voldemort helped Voldemort create Horcruxes. Because, I mean, you could say... Voldemort eventually would have found out how, but I think that it would have taken him a lot longer. Whereas once Slughorn explained the process of creating a Horcrux, then he understood the magic better. Yeah, and also I think he was more curious about if you did it seven times versus one time. I yeah, think exactly. that's, that's something he was very curious about. And then I really, really love the scene when we first meet Tom, when Dumbledore first met Tom Riddle as a young boy in the orphanage. It's a really striking scene. The, the young actor is actually Ray Fine's nephew. Uh, hero finds and a lot of people were upset that he got cast because he's related to him and they were like oh uh, it's, nepotism um, nepotism but i think he did a great job and yeah, you can, you can see you can see why they cast him but it's such a fascinating scene because tom at this age i think he's 10 or 11 11 this is like right before, this is like you can compare the it to age harry you get your letter yeah the harry being in the first movie the same age and at this point the thing with tom is like Harry, he's noticed that there is something different about him. He seems to have some kind of powers that he, most wizards at this point, they can't control. Like Harry, things happen by accident. Usually when he's upset or something drastic happens, something magic happens. But for Tom, what's interesting about him is at this age, he was already controlling his magic and he was already using it at will. He was using it to... Uh, control animals. He was using it to bully other students. He was using it to kill animals, and he's also knowingly talking to to snakes. And it's actually extremely rare for any kind of wizard to be able to have any kind of control over their powers before they even see any kind of training. Let alone he's not raised in a wizarding family where wizarding is knowledge and wandless and, and wandless. So he has no idea that it's magic. He has no wand. And no one around him has told him that he is this is magic, and yet he still managed to control these powers at this young age. And you can tell that he's so intrigued about what Dumbledore is telling him. And in the book, it's a lot more. He, he's very defensive and angry with Dumbledore at times until he learns that, like, oh, I should be very proper and I'll get what I want. I'll be able to go to the Hogwarts and everything. And then the, the shot where. He asks Dumbledore to prove that he's different too, and then Dumbledore lights his cupboard on fire, and the fire, this this provoking image of of 
just these massive flames. It, it's so like incredible to Tom and his face just lights up like this is incredible. I can cause massive amounts of fire. This is cool. Imagine yeah. what I can do. And what's cool about Tom is that when Harry was told that he was a wizard, he found he was in disbelief. Like, I can't be a wizard. Like, I'm just Harry. Harry. Just normal Harry. And with Tom, the moment that Dumbledore told him that he was a wizard, he accepted it happily because Tom, Tom Riddle and Voldemort, they are looking for any reason to be to set themselves apart from any other human being, to set themselves apart to set himself apart from a person, other normal people. And being told that he was different and he had power and he was special, he immediately grabbed onto that as something positive. And he immediately that's that's actually the turning point of him becoming polite with Dumbledore once Dumbledore tells him he's special. Yeah, great point. And What's so cool about the memories, specifically the 16-year-old one, is after Harry watches it and Dumbledore explains to him that we need to obtain the real memory. We we need to get this from Slughorn. He's protecting it to try to protect his reputation, basically. He doesn't want he doesn't want the world to know that he aided Voldemort. Exactly. Yeah. And so I love Harry's tactic where the first time he tries to ask Slughorn about the memory, he very cleverly sets the whole situation up basically almost word for word and situationally the same as what Tom Riddle did in terms of staying late at the Slug Club, that which is what Tom Riddle did. And then Harry in his office and taps the – or he doesn't tap it, but he notices Notice, the, yeah. the sand um, dial. dial, whatever you would call it. The timer, the timer, yeah, the clock. That's a lovely sl- a sand, sand dial. Sand dial, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something like that. It's the sand thing. And so, but basically, it's got word, sand in it. word for word, he kind of asks him the same question. And it's very similar to um, in Chamber of Secrets when Harry and Dumbledore and Harry and then Dumbledore and Tom Riddle have a almost word for word same exact conversation about is there something you need to tell me? No. But the only problem is that Harry didn't know what the word of magic that Tom Riddle asked him. So that was the the moment where Slughorn suspected something was up. Yeah. And so Harry's allowing himself to be collected by Slughorn because as we learn when Dumbledore and Harry go to try to convince Slughorn to come back as potions master, um, we learn that Slughorn likes to collect powerful people or he likes to be basically associated with people who are powerful, intelligent, connected. And he has this, this basically... This, all these images and portraits of all of his favorite students and all the people he knows. And and it, it really is very important to him because even though he's in this muggle's house there at the Canaries and he has it all destroyed, he still has their photos up of all his collected students. He, he essentially, he takes pride in educating people who become very influential in the world. And that's why he he, save, he saves their images and, as trophies on his mantelpiece. And Harry will be the prized possession of yeah. all of his students. His crowning jewel. Exactly. Yeah. And so Dumbledore is very clever and uses Harry to lure Slughorn back to Hogwarts so that they can try to extract the memory from him. Yeah. Do you want to move into our uh, intermission? Yeah, let's do the intermission. You're yeah. right. It's, yeah. Wow, we're, we're cruising. Yeah, it's been a while. Let's roll it. Well, this is going to be a long it's episode be a lo- because there's so be much a- more to talk about. Yeah, we're like so far in, but like, holy crap, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I'll just uh, mind you, I have a few haters of the week, more than one. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's going to be funny. Let's start with our movie quote competition. I have two. One is from our fan, Matt Zera. Let's go, Matt. To defeat my enemy, I extinguish his life and consume him as I consume these flames in honor of... Oh my God! Priest Valen. Oh, it's gangs in New York. Yeah, yeah. I want to see if you build a butcher. It. Yeah, and then this one's for me. Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you. 
unless when the perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. I know it. Rounders. No. No. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Damn it. It's a gambling movie? Yeah. Well, yeah, it takes place in Las Vegas. Hmm. I want to exactly say it. Can you say the quote again? Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you. Unless when the perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second for that yeah. one. I was like, wait, is that is there gambling in that? I was like, okay, yeah, got it. Okay, here's my quote. I got a feeling that behind those jeans is something wonderful just waiting to get out. Oh, man. It sounds so familiar. I'll say it again. Yeah. I got a feeling that behind those jeans is something wonderful just waiting to get out. Boogie Nights. Yep. Yes. Burt Reynolds character. Yeah. Nice. Good job. All right. Guess this movie release year. In the Heat of the Night. Starring Sidney Poitier. 1964. Oh, 1967. Ugh! Close. Damn it. Close. I almost said 67. I, you almost did. You definitely didn't, though. <laughs> I, did not, I did not say it. Did not. I did not hit her. I did not hit her. Mark. Oh, hi, hi Mark. Mark. <laughs> okay. Guess this movie release here. The Fifth Element. I love this movie. We should cover this sometime. We used to, we used to watch this movie a lot when yeah. we were younger. Multipass? Our, bro our, our brothers had it on DVD. Multipass. Chris Tucker is so funny in this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm stalling. I'm going to say <laughs> 1998. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, good job. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, man. You're welcome. All right. I have a, a new segment just because of Harry Potter. Ooh, so new segment. What, if you had to cast a Patronus, what would your memory be, your happy moment or thought to cast your Patronus? Keep it PG. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, can you go first so I can think of mine? Yeah. So I actually have... Two that I came up with that are ridiculous. So well, one's one's when I won the pitching title in in <laughs> championship in little league. He 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 had a great ERA. It was a, it was awesome. I was eight and zero too. But also, but like walking up and getting the trophy, which was tall than this desk, it was unnecessarily tall for a twelve year old. <laughs> but I won, and we won the championship that year too. Mm -hmm. And then um, it's a good year. Another one I chose. This is gonna sound terrible for like animal rights, but I was a kid. I was like eight. Um, on vacation in New Hampshire at Hampton Beach, <laughs> I, I went, we went to a convenience store and there was a claw machine. And so inside the claw machine were live lobsters. And so for a dollar, you could play the claw machine and catch a lobster. And if you caught it, like there were uh, there were Polaroid photos, Polaroid camera photos, which were like very common back in the day. That's all we had. Of people duck, like taped up on the claw machine of people who had won. And I won a lobster on my first try. And I felt like the king of the world. The best part of And no one ever won the lobster. Yeah, it's no a very won. difficult thing to do. The guy was like, holy crap. No yeah, one's won in like a year. Yeah, he couldn't <laughs> believe it. And what happened was we were on vacation for like a week there and we, we, were, we, were in a, we were in a motel so we were like nine yeah and our, our mom just put it in the bathtub no the i put it room. i put it yeah, in the bathtub of the motel room and then i don't know what happened to no it. i put i put in in tub water and i'm like it'll be fine and it died <laughs> I, within like 12 hours i yeah, felt so bad yeah, i should just put it in the ocean it probably starved to death no i think it's just the, the type of water oh yeah the it. type of water yeah. it's like fluoride so and all you that. murdered a lobster and that made you happy no <laughs> 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 Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. What was the happy part? 
I already got to it, but that's that's silly. But yeah, I think the pitching title would probably be it. What's funny is I gotta say mine is a baseball related one too, and it's when I hit my first and only home run <laughs> in little Not, no no in the feeling. seniors. It was awesome. It's great. The sensation was amazing. Good stuff. Yeah. Wait, no, I got it. I got it. You got one? I got it. It's bowling. Bowling with what? So we were at a bowling tournament. James and I used to bowl a lot when we were younger. It's popular in Massachusetts. Uh, and we actually were in a bowling league. Candlepin bowling, Candle not pin. big So the pins pin. are skinny. And you get three the little balls. The are, balls are this big. Like the small. size of a softball. Yeah, so it's a lot more difficult. So you get three throws instead of two. And we used to do traveling tournaments. And it would be like you, you would travel to a certain city that had a big bowling alley. And then there would be like 200 people bowling this, in this tournament. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to claim a winner. And yeah, to claim a winner. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Someone win usually wins contests, and they'll claim that person as the winner. <laughs> that worded it funny. And anyways, to my story. <laughs> so there were t- there was like a couple hundred people playing. So it took a while to get it going, and we were working. We were playing in like a team of a group of like five or six people, and it just so happened. I don't know. I don't know. Just timing. I ended up being the last person to bowl out of the entire tournament. Like your last box. Yeah, my last box. And so there was this crowd of like 400 people watching me. I'm not even, like it was a, a it whole, was packed. It, was it was gigantically packed. packed. And they're all watching me do my final box. And I was so nervous and I was like so focused. <laughs> and I threw the last pin and I got a spare and everyone erupted and clapped for me. It was a tough spare. Yeah, it was a really hard yeah, spare. Everyone, everyone, it, was everyone, like a, it was like a hit a home run. Yeah, it was, everyone was like clapping. I was like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> it's so hard to come up with that. I'm sure there are more if I like thought yeah. about it longer. But if I had to do a performance, I could think of that. And it's feel always like related, sports related, basically. Yeah. And, I teared and, up just recounting the story. <laughs> and then they they chose a winner, and it was not you. I was not claimed as the winner. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our movie pop quiz. This one's Harry Potter related. So in Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince, Dumbledore deduces that Slughorn used dragon's blood. A powerful magic property that Dumbledore actually, in the novels, wrote a book about and its uses. What was the book called, and how many uses did he discover from dragon's blood? Oh man, there are twelve uses for dragon blood. Exactly. Yeah, that's the name of the book. Okay. 12 yeah. Uses of dragon blood. Yeah. <laughs> nice job. Nice. Does it? Is that said in the first Harry Potter when he's on the card? Yeah, it's on the. Yeah, on, it's on yeah the you're card. right. It's on the, yeah. the chocolate frog card. Yeah. That's when we ever first. That's when Harry first sees Dumbledore. Yeah, good good call. Okay. What is Bruce Willis's character name in the Fifth Element? Oh man, you're gonna hate yourself if you get it wrong. I don't even. I can't remember. I haven't seen the movie in like five, six years at least. Um, some of the D. His last name starts with a D. Uh, I'm trying to think of like the radio show. It's a city. His last name is a city. Yeah, it starts um, with a D. Dallas. Dallas. What's his first name? Um. Dallas Corbin. Corbin Dallas. Corbin Dallas. Yeah! yeah! I got it! Good job. Man, I haven't, seen that movie. I haven't seen that movie in so long. I knew you could do it. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so fo- it's so crazy when things come to you like that and you yeah. haven't seen it in so long. But how many times did we see that movie? We watched like it a, a dozen, lot. Probably a dozen we times. We watched it a ton. Yeah, it was it was so cool when we were yeah. young. But like, I used to think of like, I'm just, I was picturing Chris Tucker screaming his name. <laughs> Corbin Dallas! <laughs> great, great underrated movie. All right, um... All right, biggest hater of the week. All right, we got Jack Jordan, who wrote, "I would say that I know both these guys smell awful with how they, with how little they look, 
like they shower, but I know thanks to Manscaped, they probably don't smell bad. Hey. So Jack, of course, was kidding because he wanted to get on Hater of the Week. <laughs> Congratulations, you made it. We have a few uh, Hater of the Weeks. Yeah. So Pi0726, I've been listening to all y'all's I've been listening to y'all's podcast, and you guys like just keep saying the unsubscribe joke. It's getting really, rep- un- really repetitive. Unsubscribed. Then we got Luke Clark five seven nine. This is incorrect. You are wrong. My source. Trust me, bro. Unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> Unsubscribe. You're getting the shirts made, right? Oh yeah, we He's got getting shirt shirts made, too. everybody. <laughs> Here's uh McCrano. Oh my goodness, that's completely wrong. This is why I hate this podcast. Man, I must be this week's biggest hater. <laughs> <laughs> so many. <laughs> All right, that's it for. I uh, got yeah. I have two uh, biggest supporters of the. I week. actually have a real hater. Okay, you got a real hater. A real hater. So uh, I posted a clip about Yelena Belova, Florence Pugh's character, and the actresses who were up for it and who she beat. And I listed Emma Watson and Saoirse Ronan, and someone and Mark GTM said none of those are A-list actors except for Emma Watson. And then I wrote, four Oscar nominations doesn't cut it, I guess, for Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan's an A-lister. She's awesome. Yeah. She's huge. Don't even know what you're talking about. Goodness. All right. Supporters of the week. We have two. Both are really great reviews. One's from Renee Moreno-Pats. Best podcast in the world. I love movies and glad to be able to learn more about what goes into it and anything. I didn't know that before. It was taught to me to appreciate film and sparked my interest enough to study it, maybe pursue a career in screenwriting. Thanks to my pals at Raiders of the Lost Podcast. If you love movies, you'll love them. Wow, that's amazing that we inspired you to do screenwriting. That's so cool. I'm glad I'm your pal. And then we have Allie379 cash sign. Addictive. I've always loved <laughs> nice. diving deeper into movies and hearing other people's theories about certain movies like Inception. You guys point things out that I didn't notice in a movie that I've seen 50 times before. Been listening for three days straight now. Thank you so much, Allie, for tuning in. Ooh, she's binging us. All right, on this day in film history, today is July 22nd. The Dark Knight premiered in 2008. It's also Igmar Bergman's birthday, who was the Swedish. director of Seventh Seal, um, Persona, Wild Strawberries. My streaming recommendation is on Amazon, and it is Leaving Las Vegas, which stars Nick Cage. This is what he won an Oscar for. Uh, he plays a suicidal alcoholic who falls in love with a Las Vegas sex worker. Drinks himself to death. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. Amazing performance. I have a streaming recommendation. I think you might like it. Oh, yeah? What is it? So uh, Amazon just added iRobot. Nice. Yeah, with Will Smith. It's a classic. It's a good movie. It's, it's such a, a fun just movie. really good escapist sci-fi. Super fun. He's great in it. All right, let's get back into Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And a, a great theme and motif in this film that I'd love to touch on is love potion. And so in the first potions class when Dumbledore, I mean, when Slughorn's having them guess what the potions are in front of them. And, you know, obviously Hermione guesses the love potion in front of them. And she smells spearmint and freshly mown grass. Parchment. And parchment paper. And then also she's like, she doesn't say the other thing. I bet it's she smells Ron Weasley. Oh, definitely. And then yeah. um, and then Slughorn explains that it creates such intense infatuation that it's probably the most dangerous potion in the classroom. And it's such a great concept because it really probably would be. If, if love potion existed, it'd probably be incredibly dangerous. And people would use it on each other like crazy. Who knows what would happen? Oh, yeah. And um, imagine you, if you could use it on your crush. Yeah. It's and so love, love potion which we talked about earlier with with Marope and how she used it on Tom Riddle Sr. Love Potion finds its way into Ron Weasley's system as chocolates that were left for Harry Potter from Romilda Vane. And so Romilda Vane is interested in dating Harry because she thinks she's the chosen one. And Harry's like, I am the chosen one. 
<laughs> and so that leads to Harry bringing him to Slughorn. And even though him and Slughorn are talking, he lets him in, gives him the antidote to the love potion. And then they celebrate by having the mead, which Ron sips first and gets poisoned. And this is where his relationship with the Half-Blood Prince, as dark as it seems to be from reading the book, it also saved Ron Weasley's life because in the book, they don't really talk about it in the movie. That's where he learned a bazaar will cure pretty much any... Uh, poison that is administered to somebody, and so all you have to do is shove one down th- somebody's throat. Yeah, but so, but also that he learned sectum sempra from the from the book as well. So it's good and bad what he's learning. Exactly. From it. Yeah. So, so the relationship, it's 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 good. it's same thing with the the riddle from from Chamber of Secrets, where he's learning about the Chamber of Secrets, but also it's leading him down a dark path. And it's curious we because we don't know who the Half Blood Prince is at this point. Harry at one point. Uh, he suspects that it could be his father, possibly, although his father was a pure blood. Um, and then also, you know, Tom Riddle could have been a suspect as well, but it didn't seem to fit in terms of it didn't have any evil quality in terms of the magic magic being involved in the book. And Tom Riddle and Voldemort, he wasn't like a genius potion. He's not known for potions. Yeah. He's just uh, a very powerful wizard. Although Dumbledore said he's the most brilliant wizard Hogwarts has ever seen. Yeah. So he probably was a wiz. Probably at, top uh, all right, probably potions. top of class. But yeah. probably not as good as he's Snape a, is. Wicked not as good as Snape. Yeah, Snape's probably and, the best And not potion. as good as like Slughorn probably because we also learned that the Death Eaters are trying to recruit Slughorn basically because of his skills. And speaking of Death Eaters, they added in the scene that uh, attack at the burrow which is it's a it's a decent scene. It's a decent action scene. It it a- helps with the pacing of the movie. It's not in the book, but I understand why they put it in the film because there's no action at all until the end of the book, and also Dumbledore and Harry's uh, adventure later in the book. So, cinematic, yeah, it's cinematic. Ultimately, it, when you look at it, it wasn't like the best plan by the Death Eaters to just like show up and this like oh, oh I guess we're gonna leave. Fire. Yeah, we're just gonna guess we're gonna go. And I always wonder why they don't use magic to put the fire out at the burrow. I'm assuming that the flames that they use are some kind of cursed flame that you can't rip, you can't stop. That's the only thing I can think of. It seems to be that it wasn't explained because Tonks and Lupin are like trying to cut away the flames yeah. rather than put it out, but. It, it does seem like they should have it, said, like, what, hey, yeah, why can't we put it out? What's the curse that fire that's used in Deathly Hollows by Crab or Goyle, which is strong Oh, enough. yeah, yeah. It's strong but enough. But that's, that's not what they used. Yeah, it could be. Because that similar. flame never di- stop, never dies. Okay, yeah, you're right. So that, that flame is so dangerous because it just doesn't stop yeah, growing. Yeah. And it can kill a horcrux. Yeah, so it, it wasn't that fire for sure. I can't remember what it's called, but great reference. We'll Thanks, talk man. about it next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the Room for Requirement, this is where Draco's going on his own, and, he's, and this is where he's repairing the vanishing cabinet, which is has a, a sister um, at Borgen and Burke. And it's so interesting to be back at the at the room for requirement, but not as Dumbledore's army, but to see what it had been used for by students for generations at Hogwarts, which was, I have something I shouldn't have, and I need to hide it without his teacher finding it, and then the room for requirement appearing before him. So the whole room, this giant, enormous space, is just full of all these old artifacts and there's some fun homages to past harry potter films like you can see some chess pieces from the sorcerer's stone i believe you can see the t- the tiara ravenclaw's tiara in it too as well oh, really possibly i think the mirror of iris heads in it as well so it's, it's, it's a, a mirror that looks like it yeah so yeah. it could be it could not be it's like covered up but it's it's a really cool sequence every time they're in there for draco trying to repair the vanishing cabinet with first he's sending the apple and then he's sending the bird and then also when Ginny and harry Go up there to hide the half blood, that the half blood prince's potions book, 
after Harry uses Sectum Sempra on Draco so that he never can find it or be tempted to use it again. And that's where they first make out. Make out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just fun to be back there in the room for crime. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the funnest sequences in all the Harry Potters is the Felix Felicis sequence. Dan Radcliffe did a great job with the comedy. Oh, where, man. Because they had this whole plan of like spying from spying on Slughorn and knowing his schedule. And then Harry takes it and he's like, I'm going to go see Hagrid. And it's the the Felix Felicis is probably one of the, I would say my favorite potion that JK created because it's like that character in Deadpool. What's her name? The lucky one. Yeah. Who like she's her superpower is being lucky. Same kind of thing. It's an ingenious idea, and it's so fun, the sequence. Yeah, and so he immediately takes it, and he's like, I'm going to go to Hagrid's. It feels like the place to be. And it's so fun because this is the only time, I think, in the entire franchise where we've seen Harry Potter, like, super relaxed. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like Felix Felicity, it's like like it's cocaine or something for him, or or like, or he's smoking a joint. (laughs) He's just, or both. He's super chill, but super happy. cocaine. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I've never taken it, so I I wouldn't know. I don't know either. It's a mix of both. It's an upper. (laughs) Let's just say it's an upper. And he's just, he's just so relaxed, and he's so confident, and... It, it's so fun to watch as he's going down and he, he stumbles upon Slughorn who's stealing the to tackle the leaves, which are 10 gallons of leaf. And it's it's so fun to see Slughorn's character, you know, doing something nefarious just for money. And he's like, oh, it's purely for academic. But the, the part where he's walking away from Slughorn and Slughorn's like, Harry, you can't expect <laughs> me to let you walk away from, from the castle that night. He's like, well, by all means, come with me, sir. <laughs> it's just super funny. Professor. And then, you know, we eventually learned that Felix knew what it was doing in it and knew that this was the path that Harry needed to take to lead Slughorn and him to, to Hagrid's, where Hagrid was was burying Aragog, the Arachnia, the, Ra- the Arachnia. The Arachnid? The Arachnid, yeah. The giant spider. Yeah. And it's super fun when, when Slughorn's like, do you mind if I get a vial of the venom? And he, like, mm-hmm. breaks off one of the pincers by accident, and, and Harry's like, the pincers. And this is where they get drunk, Hagrid and, and Slughorn, and Slughorn starts to talk about Lily Potter. And this is a great connection for Harry to his mother, Slughorn, because Lily Potter was one of Slughorn's favorite students. And Lily was – Slughorn was probably her favorite teacher or professor because she gave him that – the Francis, the little fish, the petal, the lily petal that turned into the fish in the pool of water. And when – one day he came down. <clears throat> excuse me. He, he came down, and the bowl was empty. That was the day that Dumbledore killed him, and it's because of Felix Felicis. Because, in any other day, Slughorn never would have been in a vulnerable state like that, being so drunk to reveal this to Harry and having the, the, the you know, sometimes like, sometimes getting a little drunk or not drunk, but like drinking. It's the right situation. Yeah, it gives you, like having a drink can give you the courage to like, you know, talk to that someone that you're like, you're too shy to talk to or, or do something that you want to do, but you don't, you kind of feel like uh, afraid to do. And so this is liquid courage, but like, yeah, exactly. In a, in a very polite and consensual way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, yeah. But I'm talking about like, try to like talk that, that girl that you have a crush on or, you know, to say hi to someone that you might be too shy to say hi to. Respectfully, yeah. It gives you that courage to do that rather than if you're sober, you might be like, never stop. You'll be like, oh, I'm not going to go over there. It'll, It'll go horribly. And so having that courage to tell Harry the truth only came about him getting drunk. And so it's all because of Felix Felicis. And, and, and ironically, it's Slughorn's own doing by awarding it to Harry. And also Harry's 
Felix, the Felix Felicis coursing through Harry basically tells him the perfect things to say to Slughorn to get it out of him. And, you know, after Slughorn tells him that story and Harry tells him, I am the chosen one. Only I can defeat Voldemort and I can't do it without this information. Be brave. Be brave like my mother. And that's when there's the beautiful shot where Slughorn, you know, he says, don't think differently of me because he's still ashamed of his guilt about it. You didn't know him back then. And, yeah. and he helps him hold his hand steady to put the memory inside the vial. Yeah. It's a very emotional, powerful scene. And Jim Broadband's acting in it is phenomenal. He's a great actor. Yeah, he yeah. might be the best actor in this movie. He pulls up the comedy and the tragedy really well. Yeah. And then after we learn, you know, which we talked about earlier, the real the real memory with the Horcrux, then it's time to, let's go, let's Dumbledore go. and Harry on their mission. Hold on, before we get into it, I want to. We need to talk about like the relationships. I think. Okay. Before we get too amped, let's save that for towards the Sorry, end. Sorry, I'm just like ready. To, I'm, I'm just fiery. But also, I think you need to tell everyone about MoviePosters.com. Oh, how about I talk to you guys about MoviePosters.com for a minute? The number one place to get your posters online today. Don't go to Amazon. I know it's free shipping, but the quality is crap. MoviePosters.com is the best. If you're checking out our site, our, our podcast on YouTube, you'll see that our set is decked out with dozens of posters. These are top-notch quality. They have all sorts of framing, backlighting, sizes. They have pretty much every movie imaginable in their library. If you are a fan of movies, if you're a fan of TV shows, there's no better way to express that love than by decking your place out with a ton of movie and TV posters. And the only place to do that is at movieposters.com. Use our very special promo, Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 at movieposters.com to get 15% off your order today. All right, let's get back into it. I want to talk about relationships and Quidditch before we get into the end because we got to touch on these. People would be very I was just so excited. So the funniest relationship, obviously, which we talked about briefly earlier, is oh, Lavender yeah. and Ron. Yeah. And at this point, Ron clearly doesn't want to be with Lavender, and she's just very affectionate and very clingy. Uh, overwhelms him with with everything, and, and there's constantly one one. All she wants to do is snog me. Look, my, my lips, lips are getting chapped. chapped. Look, <laughs> and then um. This forces Hermione. It's a similar situation where, when Ron wasn't talking to Hermione over Victor Crumb, which I think was just more in the book than in the movies. Now Hermione's not really interacting with Ron because of the jealousy she feels for Lavender Brown. Because Hermione has feelings for Ron, she's in love with him, but she she tried to hint at it, like we talked about. She tried to drop those bombs, like with the butterbeer and and the snogging. But Ron obviously is either too ignorant or too, too thick or too afraid to admit his feelings for for Hermione too. Yeah, yeah. But it it a lot of people over time, the more you look back at it, you could say that Hermione could have probably chosen someone better than Ron. I love Ron, but. She she's gonna be she can be like minister of magic. She you is know? minister of magic. Yeah, she is minister of magic. Like, hey man, love is love. And he ends up just working for his brothers. <laughs> I thought he ended up working in the auras with an order. I thought he worked for his brothers. I think we'll, have to, we'll have to look at it. I later. think he started working for them, but then he eventually uh, was work started working at the auras office with Harry. Oh man, I just want to see a Harry Potter horror movie. That'd be so cool. I, I bet they're waiting for him to age. Yeah, maybe so they don't have to recast it or anything. Yeah, but um, so speaking of that, and then. Hermione, or in, the, in the same situations happening to Harry, where he has feelings for Ginny, but she's seeing Dean Thomas. But then eventually everything switches, where after Ron's poisoning and he kind of breaks up with Lavender, and then Ginny and Dean break up. Harry and Ginny start seeing each other, and then eventually Ron and Hermione are on their path to dating. 
Oh, to be young and feel love's cold sting. That's that's one of my favorite scenes. It's so funny when yeah. Lavender and Hermione are arguing at, at the in the hospital wing, but all the teachers like Dumbledore, yeah. Snape, McGonagall are just like all watching this like two minute scene. It's so funny. Snape's like, "What the hell am I doing here?" Yeah. <laughs> Friends, better... you haven't spoken in months. <laughs> and then at in the dining hall the With next the day, she's holding the spoon. She's like, she looks pretty upset. <laughs> that that actress did a great job. She's very. Funny. Funny. She's actually voicing, I think, the animated show of of the of Potters that are coming out soon. There's like a Potter what? animated TV show, I think, coming out. What? Yeah, I didn't know that. So she's voicing the main character of that. Oh wow, what's her name of um, the of Potter of Harry Potter's kids of a, of a character whose last name is Potter? I can't remember what the show is going to be called, but her name is Jessie Cave as Lavender Brown. Really great performance. Hmm. And then Quidditch is awesome in this too. Um, Obviously, they pretty much mastered Quidditch filming-wise in, in the green screen, and we have, I think, there are two Quidditch scenes where it's Ron at tryouts, and Hermione, out of love, helps him win. With the, the Confundus the, charm. The, um, the, what's it McLaggen. called? McLaggen. Yeah, he beats McLaggen, but what's that position called? Keeper. Keeper position over McLaggen. Man, I thought the, you were a Harry Potter expert. I, what's it? We're an hour ten in, all right? Excuses. <laughs> And then the epic Quidditch match of Ron thinking he had Felix Felicis coursing through his veins, yeah. stopping all the the quaffles that are coming at him like a like a beast. No, but Quidditch does look fantastic in this. And I can't remember which movie was it. Was this the movie where they added those foot pedals? Uh, yeah, because they had never had those before. Actually, I think that they did it with Draco's brooms in, Ch in Chamber of Secrets when he bought the Nimbus 2001 for everybody. I think those maybe. had leg okay, leg handles. Okay, maybe because they definitely didn't have foot pedals in the in the first. I'm one. trying to remember. I don't think so either. Yeah, and and it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I'm pretty sure when Draco bought them all for the team, they had them. Yeah, I think you're right. But well, what happens in the in the book is that if I remember correctly, because even though Hermione helped Ron get on the team by cheating with the Confundus charm and what happens is McLaggen um, caught less balls than Ron did because of that. Although Ron gets Ron's not able to go to the last Quidditch match in the book. I can't remember why, but McLaggen fills in for him and blows the game it's when they a lose nightmare. because he was so arrogant and and was a terrible seeker. So ultimately, Hermione cho was correct in saying that McLaggen shouldn't have been on the team yeah, at all. I, I think he quit. I can't remember I, why. I think he quit. He no, Ron take it. Ron couldn't do it for some reason. I can't remember. Hmm. Someone, someone will yeah, someone comments it. Yeah, yeah, why didn't Ron play in the final match? Yeah. Um, all right, I think that's everything school was I want to get to. So, all right, let's get let's to go. Journey let's of go. the Cave. Harry gets the memory. They watch it. They learn that it's about Horcruxes. Dumbledore can't believe it. And then he must ask Harry, has too much of Harry, and he's going <laughs> to go on a mission with him. He's like, I told you if I was going to go somewhere, I'd take you with me. Let's go, bro. But he and Snape actually get in an argument. Dumbledore and Snape get into an argument. And we don't know the context of it. We just know that Snape, uh, Dumbledore's making Snape do something that he doesn't want to do. But at this point, we don't know what it is. Yeah, he says, what if I don't want to do this anymore? Yeah. Have you ever thought of that? And mm -hmm. Dumbledore's like, you agreed, Severus. This conversation's over. Get, Get the, the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, you fucking dog! <laughs> <laughs> That's Ryan Gosling in Place Beyond the Pines. Get money in the bag! Get your feet on the floor! <laughs> it's pretty 
pretty good. It's pretty good. Gosling hits some high notes. <laughs> this is one of my favorite references. All right, let's get serious because <laughs> this is, I think, one of my favorite shots in the entire film is the astronomy tower. And this movie, cinematography, again, it's just full of these beautiful shots and a ton of silhouettes and, and just these great wide silhouettes. And we have Harry and Dumbledore in this conversation. And it starts off very polite and calm and, and cordial. But in like he mentions like to Harry, like, oh, you need to shave. Because you're, you know, you're turning into a man. This is a transition period for you. You look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> but he's warning him that it's going to be dangerous, and he has to follow all the orders that he gives him. If he tells him to run, he has to run. If he ha- tells him to hide, he has to hide. He's if he has if he tells him to <laughs> get your hands in the air. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is almost as funny as your Pacino last I'm sorry. week. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> People have never seen the place beyond the pines. Like, what are they talking about? <laughs> okay, that's the last one. You bet it better be the last one. And then they apparate, which is so badass because we we actually got to see what apparating looks like in the beginning of the film. I really like the sound effect. Too. Yeah, when they apparate to Slughorn cells, you're crying. <laughs> I'm crying. You have I tears you. all over your face. I told you, I was crying. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you just got dumped. <laughs> but um, it's cool. I love the the crack and then the wide shot and the echo and then we're at the cave and the the water's going in the waves. But obviously in the book. Dumbledore puts the wand in his mouth and he's swimming through the water, which is pretty <laughs> like cool. Badass. But they couldn't do that in the movie. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Michael Gammon could do that. No. He's, be, he's pretty up there. Be a bit much. Yeah. It's all CGI. Yeah. Anyways. But this cave is so interesting because this is a place that there was a photograph of it in Tom Riddle's room in the orphanage. Although, and there was a place where the, the people who ran the orphanage would take the kid on like a little weekend getaways. There are also seven rocks, which yeah. I think are still yeah. represent the seven horcruxes. Yeah, exactly. And... But I think that what Dumbledore had been spending so much time during the semester doing was searching for this place because he didn't know what it was called or where it was. So I think that he was probably searching the shorelines of the UK trying to find this place that he remembered from his memory from the photograph. And if you remember in Deathly Hollows, the kids, the trio, they spent a lot of time trying to find all these places as well. They find the orphanage. They try to, should we go to the cave? Will the cave be significant at all? So it's it was a hard place to track down. Exactly. But the cave is a very curious place because... It's a place where Voldemort has has stored his Horcrux. It has it's uh, the locket in this one in this case. But there's so many steps to get to the Horcrux. First of all, um, you have to provide some blood to weaken whoever's entering the place, and that is what opens up the doorway inside. And also, there's that huge body of water. And this I love this scene so much. It's so eerie. It's so scary and haunting leading up to the climactic moment. And doesn't Dumbledore, not in the movie but in the book, he, he talks about when he has to give a blood sacrifice, he says, again, Voldemort, he his biggest weakness is he fears death above all else, and he thinks that this is the ultimate sacrifice: is death or blood. And mm-hmm. he's trying to say that there are much worse things than death, something like that. Yeah. But that's dumb. That's Voldemort's biggest fear, and his biggest weakness is his fear of death. Yeah. Which is why he made Horcruxes. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, this is this epic scene where they find this bowl, this crystal bowl, on the island after they take the boat across the water, and it has a potion in it, that that dark potion, and. Dumbledore tells him again, you have to follow my orders, whatever that, whatever I say, I have to drink this potion to the last drop, no matter what. And it's actually one of the most tragic parts of the entire series, watching Dumbledore suffer so much drinking this potion. At one point, he asks Harry to kill him, 
Uh, Gamma did a fantastic job. It's really, it's very difficult to watch Dumbledore go through so much pain and suffering. And I think it's even more emotional for Harry because this is Albus Dumbledore. It's kind of like his hero. You know, he's always looked up to Dumbledore. He's now officially a father figure to Harry in his life because they've been spending so much time together and he's had the the special secret classes with him where they're trying to investigate the memories and, and the horcruxes now. And so he has to not only watch his father figure, his main father figure at this point, suffer, but he's the one causing him the pain and suffering. He's the one forcing the, the potion into his mouth. And he does finish the potion, but the genius part, the very genius aspect to this um, obstacle that Voldemort put in place was that once you finish the potion, you become desperate for water. And he made it so that you cannot use water made from magic in that bowl when Harry tries to put water in that bowl, but you can only take water from the body of water surrounding them. The lake. The lake. And so, and then when you, but when you touch the water with the lake, when you touch the water of the lake, that releases the inferi. And so it's a great counter curse where, okay, you get past the potion. Well, now you have to get past an army of zombies. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, so it's brilliant steps to securing his his locket. It's terrifying to yeah. watch these these dead bodies come to life and try to grab they grab Harry down and bring him into the water. It's very reminiscent of uh, Lord of the Rings. With, oh yeah, with Frodo. Yeah. Um, and then obviously Dumbledore saves the day with that incredible magic, the spell that he does whatever it is with the enormous flames, and he creates the. The, the Moses situation where he yeah, parts the flames. Parts the flames, he parts the sea, and they get across. And What's really cool is that is the cover of the British version of the book. It's incredible. It's Dumbledore with the flames with Harry. Like it, That's like the cover, and we got like a, what was it? it? It's him in the pensive. Yeah, in the pensive. Harry like, in the pensive, like, ooh, America. <laughs> like, I want the fire one. Yeah, give me that. Yeah. So it's incredible magic, but also you can tell that even before this, Dumbledore is very weak, but now he's even more weak. And we, at the same time, we're being juxtaposed with the fact that the Death Eaters are being let into Hogwarts. Yeah, so he had to ingest that poisonous potion. His hand is cursed. His body's already dying. And he used pretty much all of his, basically all of his energy on that spell, probably. Yeah, and they get away and they get to, back to Hogwarts. But now the Death Eaters are... Are in. They've infiltrated Hogwarts, even though it's guarded by Aurors, even though it has increased security. They went through the vanishing cabinet from Borgen and Burke to the room for requirement, and they're in. Yeah, surprise attack. No one expected them to come in from the inside. And this is another really, I think this moment obviously is very hard. This upsets people because we don't have the giant battle. And also when Harry and Dumbledore, in the book they take brooms, but they apparate to the astronomy tower again. And in the book, Dumbledore has Harry put his cloak on, then he Petrificus Totalises him so he can't move a muscle. He's under the cloak so no one can see him. But in the movie, he has him hide below and tells him to trust him. The last thing that Dumbledore ever says to Harry is, trust me. And Harry does. And Harry, he's not Petrificus Totalis or anything. And so at the bottom below, he just watches the scene play out of the Death Eaters and, and Draco. And in terms of the battle, you have to understand making a scene like that because it requires a lot of actors. Like a lot of people are involved in that fight. There's a lot of special effects, there's a lot of visual effects, and a lot of sets, and a lot of destruction. And so, a scene like that, you're talking about like $30 million to make that scene, the whole sequence. And I think at the at that point when they were making their plans for the movie, they're like, we just can't afford this. We can't do it. And does it really take away from the story, no. the movie? Not no. really. It, and any, if, any, if anything, it probably 
prevents the war from Deathly Hollows from having such an impact with the battle of, of Deathly Hollows part two. Yeah, because of how big that is. Yeah, yeah. so it, it probably is better that it's not even in the movie if you can think about it. Yeah, it's just like they only have so much money to, and so many resources. And again, know? it doesn't really drive the story. Nah. It's unfortunate we don't learn about Bill getting attacked by Fenrir Greyback, which is why he likes meat raw now. And also, like, they would have had to figure out, like, how to weave in Felix Felicis into that sequence as well. Yeah. Because all the kids take it, so they, that's why they all survived the battle, because they had Felix on their side. And they're also using the galleons from Dumbledore's yeah, army. So yeah. there's a lot of, of yeah. stuff that goes into just that sequence. It, it kind of would have been an impossibility to do. It'd be like a three-and-a-half-hour movie, which yeah. I would love to watch, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's an extended a, version. HBO Max, anything. They're already pushing the budgets anyways. But... Again, the Rashami Tower is a very powerful emotional scene because Draco, he disarms Dumbledore, but then we learn that he's doing this out of fear of being killed by Voldemort. So this is where we get most of our sympathy and we learn, but this is also where we learn that he's been tasked with killing Voldemort, not just letting the Death Eaters in, but killing Voldemort and assassinating him. But Dumbledore, of course, the Horcruxes and, and Harry are his priority, but at this point, his priority has shifted to preventing Draco from becoming a murderer. That's that's one of his biggest goals right here is to to save Draco Malfoy's soul because yeah. he hasn't made those bad decisions yet. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because Dumbledore knows he's going to die. He's expected it and he's not afraid of it. But what he is afraid of is watching an innocent boy ruin his life and tear his soul apart the same way that Tom did. And he doesn't want that to happen for Draco. As bad as Draco is... Dumbledore knows that he really is just a kid. And then there's even more confusion with Snape. As he comes below the astronomy tower, he, he tells Harry to shush. And Harry in his mind's going like, can I trust Snape? Is he going to be up, go up there and help me? And if not, why doesn't he kill me or take me out right now if he's a Death Eater and part of Voldemort's crew for real? And he goes up. But you also, uh, Draco disarmed Dumbledore. Yeah, I said that earlier. Okay, yeah. So yeah, he disarmed him. But when Snape goes up there and Draco is unable to kill Voldemort, I mean, kill Dumbledore. Snape has to, according to the Unbreakable Vow, kill Vold kill Dumbledore or die. And Dumbledore's final words are Severus, please. And he directs him to Snape. And obviously, if you haven't read Deathly Hollows, you think that he's asking him to spare him and not to kill him. Yeah, but really he's, don't kill me. Yeah. he's asking him not only is he asking Severus to kill him, he's asking Severus to not let Draco become a killer. And most importantly, this is to shed all suspicion that Voldemort would ever have of Snape of not being loyal to Voldemort. If he kills Dumbledore, this makes him his right-hand man. Exactly. And it'll be a perfect cover for Snape to be accepted inside of Voldemort's most inner circle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a very tragic scene. I tear up every time I see it, watching Dumbledore die. And then I think they did a really nice thing with the students and teachers doing the, the Lumos to... Get rid of the dark mark in the sky. Yeah, I think it was a way to show like yeah. lightness overcoming the dark. And also because we didn't have the funeral for yeah. Dumbledore, so I think it was important. But I think the moment of Harry, you know, having his hand on Dumbledore's chest, that, that signifies basically the funeral exactly. of Dumbledore. Yeah, so, such a tragic moment in the whole series. Oh, man, I'm, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Yeah. But it's a, and it's the, th the trio on top of the astronomy tower, and they understand that Harry's going to need their help because as great of a wizard Harry is, he can be a bit thick sometimes. No matter how courageous he is and how badly he wants yeah. to be a martyr. Yeah. Can't so do it on his own. Hermione's like, you need us, bro. Come on. I think that covers pretty much the whole movie. I mean, can you think of anything we missed? We got it all, bro. I think we got a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a dense movie. There's a, there's a lot we to talk about. It. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff we missed, but like, I think we're good. I think we're good. You want to move on to the trivia for Half-Blood Prince? Let's do it. 
What do we got here? Okay. Hero finds Tiffin was cast as Tom Riddle, while his uncle Rafe finds plays Lord Voldemort. And David Yates say said that casting Hero had no part to play in terms of him being related to Rafe Fiennes. It was just his audition was so fantastic, and David Yates loved it, so he decided to cast him. He's probably been acting since he was a little kid because his uncle is a famous actor, yeah. so I mean, he's probably just very talented. Yeah. Horace Slughorn's outfits were designed to look very rich and elegant, but also old and threadbare. The costumes were distressed to make them appear worn, and in addition, were washed in a powdery solution to make them appear as if they'd gathered dust during the years of Slughorn's retirement. Daniel Radcliffe calls his performance in Half-Blood Prince his least his least favorite because he actually Daniel Radcliffe actually struggled with alcohol addiction um, for his for the filming of this movie. He was actually intoxicated in several of the scenes in this film, and he noticed that watching this back, he could he could tell when he was intoxicated in certain scenes. And so he's actually recovered and he's sober now, but he was struggling with alcohol for a few years. Yeah, he's yeah he doesn't like this performance at all. Yeah. Over 7,000 girls auditioned for the role of Lavender Brown and read from a scene with Madame Pomfrey, Hermione, and Ron. Ironically, Emma Watson recommended Jessie Kaye for the role, which she got even though she hadn't attended any of those auditions, and she was phenomenal. She's great. When J.K. Rowling read the script for Half-Blood Prince, she found a line where Dumbledore mentions to Harry that there was a girl he had a crush on when he was younger. She then she then had to tell the filmmakers that Dumbledore was actually gay, and so this wouldn't make sense. And his only romantic infatuation was with the evil wizard Grindelwald, whom he later defeated and became famous for. After Harry's, after Dumbledore's death, Harry is in Dumbledore's office, and we notice on his desk is a bowl of sherbet lemons as well as pumpkin juice. In Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Dumbledore announced these to be his favorite muggle candy. And in Chamber of Secrets, it is the password to enter Dumbledore's office. Sherbet lemon. Sherbet lemon. <laughs> got any more? No, I'm out. Oh, we got to do intramurals. Superlatives. Superlatives. <laughs> Why do I always say intramurals? I don't know. <laughs> this isn't a sporting event. <laughs> 400 meter dash. Oh, real quick though. Helen McCrory... Uh, rest in peace. Yeah. A phenomenal actress. She was originally cast to play Bellatrix Lestrange in Order of the Phoenix, but had to back out because she was pregnant. I think we talked about that last week. But mm -hmm. she's really good in this movie. Yeah. All right, let's do our superlatives. Superlatives. Who you got let's for MVP? Go. Cinematographer Bruno Del Bonnell. Oh, yeah. Nice. I say David Yates. Yeah, David Yates did a great job. Best scene. When Dumbledore meets a young Tom Riddle at the orphanage. I chose the cave. Nice. Best shot. The cliffside shot outside of the cave. Mine is apparating from the tower to the cave. That's two shots. Well, it's technically three. Yeah, so what's your best shot, you cheater? The silhouette of I'm just kidding. Of Dumbledore and Harry. <laughs> best actor. Alan Rickman. Jim Broadbent. Nice. Best line. Yes, I am the Half-Blood Prince. Oh, that's a good one. I chose... I was in the library the other day, in the restricted section, and I read something rather odd about a bit of rare magic. It's called, as I understand it, Horcruxes. Oh, Horcruxes. Nice. Can I say the line? Sorry, I was excited. You gotta interject all the time. 
I love attention. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that ra- that wraps our episode on the Half-Blood Prince. Thanks so much for tuning in. Next week will be the Deathly Hollows Part 1 and Part 2. We're going to do in one major big episode. It's probably going to take like two, two and a half hours. So Maybe three hours. That's going to be a good one. We yeah. better get the AC pumping for I that. Wa- I want to watch it tonight. Let's go. Let's, Let's go. It's too late. It's like 11. Let's watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Find us on all audio platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. Weekly episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, plus bonus reviews throughout the week. Find us on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. Thank you so much for listening around the world. Feel free to watch one of these other videos right here.